0: listening to the pros and content podcast brought to you by Notch, the content intelligence platform. This episode is part of our data-driven marketing leader series, hosted by Notch co-founder and CEO Onda Ganska. In these interviews, we chat with CMOs, VPs, and others who are ahead of the curve when it comes to both content and data and how they use both to move their businesses forward. We reveal really unique perspectives on the importance and intersection of measurement and content, as well as a ton of fun personal stories and career advice from these incredible leaders. Enjoy.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Data Driven Marketing Leader Podcast. I'm really excited to be joined today by Daniel Lysot, who is joining us from LegalZoom, but has had a very intense and a fascinating career all across technology before coming over to university from Australia. Sounds like you went to the rival university to mine. <laughs> so hopefully, we can get into that a little bit. But welcome, first of all, and. Really great to have you here. I've been excited for this conversation for a while now.
2: Yeah, thank you. I'm uh, happy to be here and excited also.
1: Cool. Well, um, Daniel, I always like to start with a quick question on your journey and what really brought you here. I'd love to hear more about that.
2: Yeah. So I moved from Australia to Berkeley when I was 18. I actually got a scholarship to swim there when I was coming out of high school And at first, I was only planning on doing it for a year or two, see how I liked it. Really as an experience, I really hadn't traveled overseas before. So I wanted to see if I could use it as an opportunity to go overseas, learn some new things while leveraging my time as a swimmer and actually getting more out of it. So I did that when I was 18. I ended up staying for longer than I initially thought. Then met my now wife when I was towards the end of college and the rest is history. I ended up staying and now I have three young daughters and I'm here for good and wouldn't have it any other way.
1: That's wonderful. I love the fact that you came to Berkeley, which is a school that so many people dream to come to, right? And you were like, oh, maybe I'll do it for a year or two. I know.
2: I don't think I appreciated the opportunity as much as I should have when I was 18, but now I, I definitely appreciate what it's given me and the path it's put me on.
1: Well, before we jump into talking about serious stuff, just real quick, I, I have some level of familiarity with Australians. I think if you knew like three Romanians, you'd feel like you knew them all. And so I feel like what you just said is so Australian. Like it's so relaxed. Yeah, I like most Australians I know Proceed in life with a great sense of optimism and an assurance that everything is going to work out. Did I stereotype that That's
2: accurate. And I would say especially accurate with me. I, I try and live one day at a time and make sure that I'm getting the most out of each day. But yeah, I definitely try and stay even killed. There's going to be good times, bad times, but overall things tend to trend in the right direction.
1: Well that's very different from the Eastern European existentialist intense, you know, <laughs> mentality. It would have saved me a lot of money in therapy had I grew up grew up in Australia.
2: <laughs> it doesn't happen all the time, but that's at least how I try and live.
1: That's awesome. Well, um really curious to hear what got you into marketing and in particular the way you think about marketing which I think is also pretty unique. You came up through a track that is kind of different from the usual brand creative track. So tell us a bit about that.
2: Yeah. So it started in college. I, in college, had no idea what I wanted to do. I came in with an open mind to try and figure out my own path while I was at college, especially once I decided to stick around and stay. And I was drawn to my marketing classes, especially. I found them particularly interesting. I think the combination of art and science was really appealing to me. I definitely and more on the art and math side of marketing than on the, I mean, on the science and math side of marketing versus the art. But I've always had a really strong appreciation and admiration for creative people. And so being able to work in that environment was particularly interesting. And it led to me actually writing my thesis at college on technology and the impact that technology, specifically the internet and DVR, that type of thing was having on the marketing industry and how it was changing not only the way that consumers engage and interact with marketing, but also it was changing the way that marketers have to think about deploying marketing and specifically being more data-driven with their approach. And so that was kind of the, the starting point that what got me interested in going down this path. And then as I started to get into my career... I quickly gravitated towards performance and data-driven marketing activities. And in reflection, I think the the reason behind that I, I mentioned before I was a, a swimmer, and I am often asked, "Why would you swim?" <laughs> it's
1: not. Why? It's not what? Why it's would not, you Why would you play football? Like <laughs> I know,
2: but it's not a particularly it's not a social sport. You're, uh, you're looking hi. at a black line and swimming for hours and hours. But I think when I reflect on it, one, I was competitive. And so doing anything that allowed me to compete was very appealing. But I also think the, the constant feedback and objective feedback that swimming gives you and it's the clock, it's the time that you're doing, you're either doing well or you're not. And you actually would adjust things like your stroke and your technique, your training uh, schedule, and you would quickly see if those things were working or not. And the thing that would indicate if it was working was the clock. And so as I got into marketing, um, and especially when I was done with swimming, I feel like that was missing a bit from my life, that constant objective feedback that allowed you to improve and make informed decisions on how to improve. And so I just naturally gravitated to more performance and data-driven marketing that provides that feedback loop that allows you to try new things and you can objectively see if those things are working or not. And if they're not working, you learn from them and you try something else. If they are working, you try and build upon it and optimize. And so that, as I've continued my career, I've shifted way more towards that side of marketing than I initially anticipated, but uh, it's been really rewarding in the same ways that sport and swimming was historically.
1: So let me ask you a big question. You know, this um, saying that 50% of your marketing doesn't work, but you just don't know which 50%. What would you say to people who think it's just impossible to figure it out? Like, it's just too hard, it's too complex. And at the end of the day, you just can't figure out the ROI of marketing.
2: Yeah, that's a loaded statement.
1: I'm hoping that you just say try harder.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so let me split it into categories. There's certain parts of marketing that are scrutinized way less because the attribution is simpler. And because, to be honest, they're at the lower part of the funnel that directly connects to business outcomes. And so... When you're having to defend marketing budgets, usually the lowest funnel stuff is it gets the least amount of scrutiny. Because your typical way of measuring performance is usually based on last touch last click, and so those metrics look more positive for lower funnel channels. Where the scrutiny comes in and where the fifty percent, you're saying, you know not sure what it does or how effective it is is usually more in the upper funnel portion. It's probably the main problem I've encountered in my marketing career, and probably most marketers have, which is how do you develop an attribution method that provides fair credit to all channels and isn't focused on last session or in session performance, but is focused more on the impact it has to the entire customer journey. And it's especially important for a business like ours at LegalZoom where a high consideration product, people don't transact immediately after seeing an ad. There's a lot of research that goes into their decision making. And so crediting just that last mile of the journey is really flawed and will lead to poor decision making.
1: I'm going to say... I'm not going to put words in your mouth. I'll just say it's also lazy.
2: It's lazy. Yes,
1: I believe it. I think there's better ways to do it. So, yeah.
2: And it requires you, one, to identify those better ways. But two, it also requires you to educate your counterparts along that journey. And so if you identify an alternative attribution method, whether it's a media mix model or a multi-touch attribution or some sort of mid-funnel measurement tool like Notch, If you just treat it as a source of truth without building confidence in it yourself through things like testing and experimenting and validating the outputs of that model, but also building confidence with the people that are going to scrutinize those investments or question those investments, which is you CEO, you CFO, really the people whose job it is to make sure that they're investing the money in the most effective way If you don't do that process, then it's going to lead to friction and difference of opinions on how the money should be invested. And so a big thing for me whenever I've explored any sort of multi-touch attribution solution is in the initial stages of onboarding it, making sure that you have a concrete testing plan to validate the outputs of it and you educate the entire organization along that journey. With the objective of being coming out of it, we have collective confidence that this is a trustworthy attribution method. And then it's less like people's opinions saying, okay, I don't think this is an effective investment. And it's more like based on this attribution method that we've all agreed upon and we've tested, validated, it's telling us to make this investment. And I, I think that's a constant process where you need to continually build confidence in it because. Other parts of the organization who are less concerned with attribution, they're just so focused on everything being in session and last touch. And so you kind of need to coach people along the way as you build that trust.
1: Well, I think marketing teams are also built in a way where the focus is either first touch or last touch. And technically, I don't know if there's anyone responsible per se for the middle, which maybe there should by now. Someone should have come up with some some like team or function, especially in a high consideration organization.
2: Yeah, right? I, I see in our organization data science being responsible for that, the accountable stakeholder in partnership, post collaboration with the marketing department as well. But Their job is to ensure that we have the right measurement tools and that the measurement that we're putting forward is accurate and has a level of confidence in it. And so I don't know if that's in every organization that data science takes accountability and responsibility of that. That's the way I at least see it here. And it's not to say you hand it over to data science to say, good luck. It's that you collaborate with them, feed information back and forth, and then collectively decide this is the attribution that makes sense for our business.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I want to pull out an insight that I heard you say over the last two minutes or so that I think the audience needs to hear, which is a lot of times we talk about how do you build confidence in upper funnel and mid funnel efforts? with your CFO counterparts. But what you're saying is actually first you need to build confidence in the way in which you will measure those things before you can even eventually kind of build confidence in those right. things. Absolutely. themselves, Right. Yep. And it's not like you can just take any attribution model or marketing mix model and throw it at it just to be like, Oh, Hey, CFO, see, I'm measuring. You're saying you actually have to get the finance team and all the other counterparts that are relevant to buy into the methodology.
2: That's it. Yeah. Interesting. And the process to do that is a series of tests. And so we've done like geo-based incrementality tests to see if the results that we see from those very structured controlled testing environments based on the allocations that any attribution method tells us to actually follow, whether we see similar results to the output of the model. And if we do, great. We say, okay, check that box. We're confident that the output of this is at least directionally in line with what we would expect. If we don't, we try and uncover where's the differences, where are the results that we're seeing in this testing differing from what we actually see in the output of the model, and then try and work with our partners, whether that's an internal or external partner, to try and fine-tune the model to account for whatever discrepancies that you're seeing. But I think the first thing, as you just mentioned, it's for me anyway, I have to have confidence in it first. If I'm going to go represent this and use it as our source of truth to make first and foremost to make decisions on how to allocate spend and where to invest. But then the second process is once I have confidence in it, like building the confidence of the other stakeholders as well.
1: I think what's really interesting to acknowledge is that the mindset that you seem to be in is not like, what's my next creative campaign? It sounds like the mindset that you're in is how do I build the next test, right? It's almost like you, you live in a world where you assume that none of your ideas are definitively good or bad. You're just kind of assuming that everything has to be tested. And more than that, that the testing framework has to be shared and kind of bought in across the organization.
2: Yeah, yeah. I um saying that I use with with my teams is growth and which I see marketing as, as and growth is the same thing these days. But growth is a game of inches. There's no silver bullet. Now, some of those things that you launch may lead to more inches than others. But there's no like magic wand you can come in with and say, I'm going to deploy this one specific strategy and it's going to lead to exponential growth through a marketing strategy. It requires you to, one, have the right data infrastructure, but two, be able to draw the insights from that data and then to validate those insights or those opportunities that you uncover Through testing and learning and through that process, which is never ending, you're uncovering all these learnings along the way that can help you build a larger marketing strategy that's going to be most effective for your audience and for your specific journey. Because every audience is different. Every journey is different that those customers go on. And the only way to figure out exactly what's going to work for that specific audience and journey is, in my opinion, through testing. Now, I definitely don't want it to come across like those big creative ideas aren't important because... I personally have a lot of respect and admiration for people that will take those leaps and come up with those big creative ideas. And I always try and find a a partner that I can rely on that's more takes the lead on the art side than the, the science side of marketing. But it should be informed by data the creative concept, whatever that is, like you should know your customers. You should know the customer, the data behind those customers, and that should inform whatever creative strategy that you choose to deploy. And it definitely should be fine tuned and optimized based on data. If you are just launching something like a creative strategy and you don't know why it's working or why it's not working, then it's very hard to improve upon that foundation that you've built. And so it is a, a never-ending journey of trying to improve. And the only way that you know, at least from my point of view, if you're improving or not is is through the data feedback loop that you're you're constantly assessing and, and making sure that you're making the right decisions that are going to have the biggest impact on the business.
1: Well, I think the game of marketing has changed since the days of Mad Men, where maybe presumably it was a lot more about silver bullets and less about inches because there weren't that many channels or mechanisms to really be able to move in inches. It was was either move big or not move at all. But now it's the opposite. It's so fragmented and it's all about inches. It's all about sending personalized messages against the right channels at the right time. But it's interesting because we're still undergoing a mindset shift in marketing from silver bullets to inches. I actually think, I mean, taking a step back, I feel like life is about inches and not silver bullets. And we spend most of our 20s figuring that out. (laughs) But I feel like marketing maybe is going through its 20s right now. And there's definitely a transition in terms of the CMOs that I see take over some of the biggest roles, you know, the kind of former generation of CMOs versus the current generation of CMOs. And I'd say one of the biggest differences is the fact that they think in inches and they are very humble. And so they always assume that everything has to be tested, just like you were talking about.
2: Yeah. And I think part of that is the environment has changed so much in which we communicate and advertise to consumers. It's like... We now... Consumers are bombarded with information constantly across a million different platforms. And so the biggest thing that I try and drive home with any marketing team that I'm on is, is relevance is key. Like We're competing constantly for someone's attention. And the timeframe in which we have to capture that customer's attention has reduced dramatically. They now are in power on whether it's a a TV or online or social or whatever it is, they have the power to choose to engage or not to engage. And if you don't capture their attention, and the best way to capture their attention is through relevance, if you don't do that quickly, then they're not going to pay attention to the advertisement And the only way to tell if they're paying attention or not, since that power has shifted towards the consumer a lot more than it ever has, is through the analytics and performance data. You can tell quickly, like, this is working or it's not working. And from a marketer's perspective, not only do consumers have this bombardment of information and platforms that they engage with, but we have more options than ever on how to invest and where to invest our money. And so trying to identify those channels that work best for your channels, uh, for your specific products, it's more wide open than ever. And so you really need to take a calculated and systematic approach to try and figure out what's going to work and what doesn't.
1: So using that point to talk a little bit about this intersection of content and data, I think during COVID, we saw this just volume of content go up, like everyone had to say something and everyone was doing it in in the digital realm, right? And I often think about the tension or the friction between these three variables, volume, distinctness, and relevance. And I think there's some interplay between all of them, right? But I think we've kind of gotten to a point where everyone has volume, but very few have relevance and maybe even fewer have this. Distinctness? Is that the right way to say it? (laughs) So, I think data to some extent can help. You know, I think there's innovation. I don't know if you saw the chat GPT or have, if you've gotten a chance to play with it, but the AI driven chatbot that was launched by OpenAI and it has the power to generate even more content, you know, even faster at lower cost. So, I'm curious, how do you think about where the world's headed from like a volume distinctness and relevance perspective? And how do you think about creating that strategy for you guys at LegalZoom?
2: Yeah. So the volume portion of it, I think, is kind of the easiest to solve, as you just pointed out. Like, we can get in front of people and specifically like certain types of people easier than ever right now through the different targeting capabilities, audience platforms that we can leverage. And so to me, the bigger focus is on the last two. And distinctiveness—you are talking about in comparison to competitors—is that what you are referring yeah, to? Yeah, because yeah. Because there's
1: just there's just a sea of sameness in almost every industry, whether it's financial or software, or you know, almost everyone knows how to play the SEO game, and everyone's playing the SEO game, but it's leading to this lack of distinctness.
2: Oh, for sure, uh, and and it's part of the environment as well, where Google re- rewards certain totally. things. And so everyone does the same thing because it's what Google is rewarding. But on this distinctiveness side, it's like we, it's this is where the art side of marketing really has to come into play, where you say, okay, what are our advantages of our brand and of our product? And how do we message that in a way that's not only unique, but is easy to relate to for our customer base? If someone like myself, comes in and starts to write copy and stuff, it sounds very programmatic and just very like, here's the points we're trying to get across. But I still truly believe brand and brand voice is important to get that across in a way that's very different than your competitors to create a brand that people can actually relate to versus just a bullet list of like, here's all the things that make us stand out. And so working collaboratively with the creative side of marketing and trying to create that distinguished voice that stands out and is relatable. On the relevance side, so in order to be relevant, the first thing you need is a a customer database. You need to have a database of all your customers, all the behaviors that they take both offline and online through all your channels. So you can start to build a 360 understanding of who these customers are. And then from that, you can have better segmentation, better personalization. You can make sure that your messaging is consistent across channels. But if you don't have that 360 view of your customer, and each of your channels are operating in a silo based on their own data and their own information, that's where relevance really suffers because you're not getting all the data inputs that are needed to create a hyper-relevant message. And you're also not connecting your channels in a way where they're working together instead of potentially working against each other or cannibalizing each other because you're operating in silos, And so for the relevance portion of it, it really requires a shift to a consumer-centric focus in your marketing versus a channel-centric focus. And that's something that we're working on right now. We've got areas to improve there. But it's critical because, as I said before, if you're not putting out something that's relevant to that specific customer at that specific part of their journey, it's most likely they're going to ignore it in this day and age.
1: Tell me a little bit about how you guys think about the data function that you mentioned. You, you called it data science. There's obviously data engineering, data analysis, research, et cetera. How much of it does it sit within marketing? How much of it sits outside? And if so, who does it report to?
2: Yeah, so we have, we have a centralized data team, but we do have a portion of that team that kind of dotted lines into marketing. And I think these are in the way that I like to run marketing, the most critical people in the organization, I try and make sure a few things. One, with our data, it needs to be accurate. <laughs> you need to be confident. And it, it, look, there's always areas to improve your data accuracy. You'll uncover things all the time, but there needs to be a collective sense of confidence in the insights that you're reading. So you can make decisions without them being questioned it needs to be comprehensive. And so they need to make sure that, take customer data for example, every possible event is appended to that customer profile, which affects everything downstream from that. And so making sure that you have access to all the data that's needed. And the third one that I I point to is accessible. If your data and the way that you structure your data infrastructure is only accessible to data engineers, or to analysts, you're really handcuffing yourself. And it needs to be accessible to marketers, to product managers, to all parts of the organization. Because what happens if it's not is, one, the velocity in which you're gathering insights is dramatically reduced because it goes into a pipeline where they have a backlog and they have to actually manage that backlog effectively. But it also means that all the insights are coming from just one team that aren't necessarily specialized in the areas that you need to draw the right insights out to take the appropriate... They may
1: not have the business context.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And so the accessibility part is huge. And I think something that's overlooked often. And once you have the tools where the data is accessible, it requires you to build a culture and an environment where people understand... You need to learn how to use these tools. You need to know how to get into Google Analytics, Amplitude, any of these web-based analytic platforms. And you not only need to know how to go into them, but draw the insights that are most relevant for your specific department and your specific goals. And if you don't have that, I've just seen that, one, it leads to really slow testing, learning, etc., and two, it's you often are focused on the wrong priorities because the right people aren't the ones drawing the insights.
1: That's interesting. So there is focused work and almost like specialized work to be done by the data science team. But when it comes to the tool set that you're building within marketing, It's really about empowering the day-to-day marketers to have access to the insights themselves. And, And then it's about essentially having the expectation that part of their job would be to learn how to use these products and do some of it themselves.
2: Yeah. And then the data science team, we call data science. It's really our analytics and data science team. They're merged into one organization. To me, their responsibility is ensuring that we have very clean and clear insight into the what. So what are the performance trends that we're seeing, and then making sure they're accessible to the entire organization through the different tools. But that needs to be automated as much as possible. Manual reporting will just kill marketing organizations and the velocity in which they operate. And so understanding the key group of metrics that need to be monitored and tracked regularly, and then automating that as much as possible, And if you do that effectively, then the majority of your data and analytics team's time should be spent on uncovering the why behind those trends. Like when things go up or down, why? What led to that performance increase or decrease? And digging in at the driver level instead of the outcome level. Like when we monitor performance, it's typically metrics like revenue and conversion and transactions and all of this. But there's a whole bunch of metrics underneath that, the drivers of those metrics. And and the analytics team, I think, should really be prioritizing uncovering those why's. Like why was there a performance change? And feeding that into the different channel leads, whether it's a marketing or product channel lead to say, hey, have you seen this trend? This is something you might want to be aware of. This is something we might be able to test into. That will lead to better performance outcomes. But reporting on what, it just lets you know that we have a sense of what's actually going on. We don't understand what action we're going to take against that trend because we haven't uncovered the why. And so I always try and figure out a way to minimize the amount of time data and analytics teams are spending on the what to free up more of their time to understand the the why behind those trends.
1: I really like that, actually. I think a lot of the platforms, including Notch, talk about how we basically do everything. One of our board members says the what, the so what, and the now what. And the reality of a lot of these platforms, including Notch, is that we specialize in the what. And maybe we can get into the now what. But the reality is, you need a lot of business context of that particular customer to really do the so what and probably part of the now what as well yeah and so to have that team really specialize like maybe reduce the number of hours they spend actually analyzing data like there's 50 tools to do 50 million things try to get their time on really understanding the why I really i really like that
2: i like your board members idea as well yeah yeah Yeah. it's so what now what And, and it's right it's when you uncover the wire, the next step is what action do we take against it?
1: Yeah, exactly. And what will it change?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and by the way, where should we prioritize it against every other thing that we could potentially right, work from.
1: Right. Well, that brings me to a question around planning. Cause I'm curious how you guys get kind of your merchant orders. Like who, who comes up with the overall company objectives? How did then they boil down to marketing objectives and then further down into more tactical objectives?
2: Yeah. So, look, I've been at the company for 4 months now. And so... You don't have all the
1: answers? Take
2: this with a grain of salt. (laughs) I would say that the company is going through a bit of a transition right now from a marketing-focused strategy to more of a product-led strategy. And so we're super focused on right now developing new products that... Align with our customers' needs. There's been a lot of research on what adjustments to current products that we can make to better suit a wider variety of customers. And so a lot of the corporate strategy right now is being developed at that product level, which means that marketing, we are, our responsibility in that process is to support those launches as effectively as possible. And then to make sure that we're maximizing the efficiency and effectiveness of our spend to get customers into those products. And then as you make changes to products and the funnel efficiency of those changes impact your marketing efficiency, Like being on top of that and making sure that you understand when there is a product change that impacts funnel efficiency, any part of the funnel, positively or negatively... That we're accounting for that in how we allocate budget towards those products and making sure that we're maximizing our overall efficiency of the spend, especially important in channels like performance marketing, where it really is just like, how do we maximize our ROI? And so, yeah, right now, we're kind of more of a supporting function than we ever have been But eventually, I think the objective is to get these new products into rotation and then start aggressively pushing those products and leaning back into um, more upper funnel investment and brand awareness type stuff.
1: And I'm assuming some of the shift in strategy has to do with what's going on in the world. I think it's not unique that you guys are... It sounds like at a high level, you're, you're decreasing some of the brand investment and really focusing on areas that are more measurable and ultimately add more value to the customer. I think the way that I would maybe phrase it or summarize what I've seen across a lot of brands is that everyone seems to be becoming a little bit more humble, like less about themselves and more about what does the customer need to be successful at this time. Would you, I mean, any other kind of big changes that you're making based on what you're seeing in the economy?
2: So first of all, with the economy, like you have to understand the impact of every dollar that's being spent now more than ever. And when I say impact, it's like impact on business outcomes and and not just metrics like brand awareness. So trying to draw those connections are critical. Where we're shifting our focus is like we, I would say historically, we've done a very good job with our upper funnel and brand awareness. We have, we're the category creator, we're definitely the leader in our category as far as small business formations are concerned with brand awareness and those upper funnel metrics. But as I mentioned before, where our product is not an immediate purchase, it's a high consideration purchase, there's a long buying cycle. And there's a big part from awareness where people go through and research and the way that re- people research our products is one through content, and so they're looking for a thought leader, and they're researching different things. They're researching what is the right business for me to form, and so there's an educational portion there. Then, like, what is the differences that those different business entities provide me, and so education there. And then the final step is like, who's the right solution for me to leverage to to form my business. And so we're really focused in that mid-funnel section and making sure that we have the right content to answer those questions. Making sure that we're positioning ourselves as the leader when people go through that research phase. And that's not only making sure that we have the content to answer those questions, but that third parties that are answering those questions for people as well are representing us accurately as a product and a brand, and that we're prominent on those publishers as well. And so we're really focused on building out that mid funnel content strategy and partnership strategy. And then also making sure that we're connecting that to an effective in-product lower funnel strategy as well, where our life cycle kicks in. And once people have done this research and they've shown a level of intent, we're nurturing them down to conversion as effectively as possible through personalized communication that is two-way and is not just us talking at the customer, but actually listening to the inputs that they're giving us and putting in front of them the right message through that personalization and re-engagement. So it is uh, the overall summary there is, I believe if we do improve that mid and lower funnel, eventually it will make our upper funnel investment even more effective than it has been in the past.
1: Well, it sounds like you're coming out of a phase where you've already made that investment. And so you're writing out kind of the brand affinity that you already have and focusing on getting the rest of the machinery more efficient. So that when you can swing back into that brand investment, it's gonna work even better.
2: Exactly, exactly. But you know, it's it's also a little nerve-wracking and, and you have to monitor things closely because the lack of brand investment, it can it can impact things in unusual ways. And so making sure you're on top of, and when I say lack of brand investment, I should say reduction in brand investment. There's yeah. still very much investing in in brand, but You really need to make sure that you're monitoring all of your channels and the performance of those channels because the whole purpose of brand is going to have a trickle down effect into the performance of those channels. And so understanding what it does to your branded SEO, your branded SEM, understanding if it does anything to the funnel efficiency of your other channels and the investment in those channels. And so we're very much aware and cautious of monitoring the overall impact that that reduction has versus just the impact it has to the specific channels that we're investing in.
1: Makes a lot of sense. Well, let me let me ask you a final question. We've talked a lot about the importance of really measuring every stage and every dollar and how important that is in general, but also in the next 12 months. I know that there's a lot of of listeners who are wondering how they can get started. I think that the most interesting thing about content marketers and brand marketers is that they all want to become performance marketers, but it's pretty intimidating because there's just so many tools. There's so many measurement frameworks. There's so many attribution models. Like, where, Where would you recommend that they start even kind of thinking about this?
2: Yeah. So getting started in terms of like launching a marketing strategy from the ground up i think or... just
1: getting just getting imagine these folks already have jobs in all sorts of organizations but they they just want to align more with the times and where things are headed yeah and so how can they make some of their work and the way they articulate their work to the rest of the organization and and the higher ups more data driven
2: yeah so i think the first thing is you need to know you need to know your funnel And you need to know your journey that a customer goes through. And then you need to identify what are the key metrics within that funnel and journey, the drivers that lead to those business outcomes. If you don't have an understanding, and sometimes I see marketers, they get so stuck in their own channel data, Mm -hmm. that they have trouble pulling themselves out and looking at the bigger picture and what the company objectives are and what the company funnel and performance looks like. And then it's like, how does your channel impact those metrics and the performance of that funnel? And so understand that. Understand the journey, the funnel, the different metrics associated with it. And then start to connect those different funnel metrics to different drivers where different channels that can impact them. And so you start to get a sense of, okay, this is the channel that's going to impact this specific part of the funnel most effectively. And as you're prioritizing, it depends again on the product. But if you're a product like ours, where it is that long purchase cycle and they go through a process... I think it's important to build your strategy from the bottom of the funnel up. I think, as I said before, if you're making a lot of brand investment into a mid and lower funnel that has a lot of gaps where you're not prominent on these research sites, you're not prominent on SEO, then you're... You potentially you're going to drive that to competitors
1: because you'll create awareness, and then
2: they'll go do their research, and they're more prominent in the mid and lower funnel. Mm -hmm. And so they'll end up going to your competitors. And so if you're starting from scratch, building that data and performance-driven foundation, I would recommend that you start at the bottom of the funnel and work your way up. And a big part of that bottom of the funnel is content creation and making sure if you're thinking about SEO, making sure that you're identifying the most impactful keywords and phrases and associated content um, that can actually drive the most business outcomes. And there's a million tools that you can use to get that sort of information. But then also just looking at competitors and saying, okay, when I type in these high volume keywords, whatever it is associated with my business, like for us, things like how to start an LLC. And when you see which competitors are doing the best, part of that is because of the domain authority and the core web vitals and all the other things that impact SEO. But a huge part of it is just the content. And Mm -hmm. that's the most important aspect of it. And so if you're looking to get a head start Find those high volume keywords that people are researching. Find competitors that are ranking well. Look at their content. okay, this is what they're doing well, and this is where I think we can improve upon it. and use that as a starting point to launch your mid and lower funnel strategy
1: so i'll 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 repeat it back to you. The first point was know your funnel and know your journey. So even if you're in a silo somewhere in a larger company or you're just doing content for SEO sake or, you're doing brand journalism. Ask yourself what is the funnel and journey of the customer of your company, because even if no one else is asking you that, it will benefit you to know. Yep. The second one was,
2: I recommend anyway, starting at the bottom of the oh, funnel, the bottom, bottom and working up, working their way up, and so. If you're looking at, say, like the bottom of the funnel really is your post-registration lifecycle campaign stuff, those need to be in a really good place if you want to drive transactions, otherwise they're going to drop off at that point. And then you work your way up to like retargeting campaigns that have shown intent. Then you research content and then your video-based research content and slowly work your way up. And so as you make investments in that top of the funnel, it goes into a more effective funnel that converts them at a higher rate. And it's also just back to your, how we started this conversation. If you're trying to convince other people in the organization around the effectiveness of your investment, the lower funnel is easier to measure. And right, so being needed. able to
1: connect the dots is going yeah, to be it's key. It's
2: easy to be able to show the worth that it's providing. And uh, hopefully over time, you can also educate and, and convince people that the upper funnel investment is having an impact as well.
1: And then the third point you made was basically do research on your own company and competitors, right? And sort of criticize your own strategy, criticize your competitor's strategy, but pretend that you're you're a customer essentially and start doing those Google searches that a customer would be doing when they're in that mindset.
2: You hit the nail on the head with that last point. Like not only research your company and the competitors, but your customers, like customers should be at the center of everything you do. And so understand the process that they go through before making that buying decision and then align your priorities with what the customer's needs are. And if you do that, then typically it will lead to better results.
1: It's interesting, as you were saying that, I was realizing that we talk, we spend all this time talking about the art and the science of marketing. But at the end of the day, it's just a human having a human experience of wanting to buy something. And if you move too far away from that in either the art or the science, you kind of miss the point. And so I think it, you're right. It all has to start with that and just kind of gaining empathy, complete empathy for, for the experience that your customer is going through.
2: Yeah. And they're they're giving you constant feedback through data, (laughs) like whether it's quantitative or qualitative data, like they're giving you feedback around what their preferences are and what they really see as relevant and what they want to engage with. And so listen, listen and assess it and use that to inform the decisions that you make.
1: I've loved this conversation. Thank you so much, Daniel. This was so useful. I know everyone's going to Take out a big notebook and write down everything that we just talked about. But really appreciate you sharing this with us.
2: Of course, I appreciate it as well. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening to Data Driven CMO. Take a moment to subscribe so you can drop in on future conversations with CMOs who are ahead of the curve in content and data, using both to move their businesses forward. Learn more how the right data can reveal your organization's true audience journey at Notch.com. That's K-N-O-T-C-H dot And thanks for listening.